Hey everyone, this is Cobain the Christian. Uh, today we're going to do a discussion of my debate with Matt Slick on the doctrine of justification. Before we get into the meat of this video, I want to thank all of my current and new patrons. It's been so, so encouraging to uh, see all of the new patrons. Uh, I want to thank all of my current and new subscribers. Again, very, very encouraging. And I wanted to uh, just throw it out there that if you enjoy this content uh, uh, and if you are in a financially sound position, uh, please consider becoming a patron at a $5, $10, or $20 tier. And you can also do a custom, uh, a custom amount within one of those tiers as well. If you look at the Patreon uh, page, you will see the premium content that is provided at each of these three tiers. And I did do a post-debate after show uh, for a couple hours where you kind of had conversations with people in the live chat. Uh, the recording of that will be made exclusively available to patrons at $10 and above. Now, I'm not saying that this is what I'm going to do for all live streams in the future, but uh, for this live stream, it is going to be available only to patrons who contribute $10 and above. Uh, but thank you all so much, whether or not you're a patron, thank you for watching, thank you for engaging. Um, it is very exciting to uh, get more deeply into this. So let's talk about the debate. First, immediate impressions. I really, uh, felt that Matt was gracious, that uh, he behaved perfectly pleasantly, uh, that he uh, was in good humor. Um, I know some people uh, felt and commented that, you know, the, the, the jab at my hair um, was out of line. I, you know, it's perfectly legitimate and perfectly pleasant. Um, you know, it's a joke. Uh, and... I did also hear a comment that, uh, you know, the example of a sin that he would use is smacking Cobain upside the head. Uh, someone felt that that was passive aggressive. I really didn't feel that way at all. Uh, and so I, I felt that it was, uh, there was a very good energy in uh, the engagement. And I just want to point out, because you may not have noticed explicitly, that Matt never once interrupted me. Okay, so when we were doing that back and forth, there was not like a formal clock that was measuring how much time each of us were getting. And I have a problem, as you guys well know, with uh, kind of starting to just go on and on and on when I start getting going. And he never once interrupted me and he never once made a stink about it, um, about the way in which I, I went on. So he was very gracious. Um, and I just want to say, uh, at least in this debate, and I haven't seen... I haven't seen like most of his other debates, so you guys can form your own view, and that's fine. Um, but my impression was uh, was a good one on a personal level. You know, we disagree passionately, um, and uh, he's got to say what he thinks the truth is. So, uh, so it was a it was, I had a good personal impression. Uh, that said, I. On the substance of the debate, uh, I feel as if, or I think, thinking and feeling shouldn't be used interchangeably, 
I think that the central plank of my argument was never substantially engaged. And we're going to talk about that as we move forward in this video. But the central plank of my argument, if you haven't seen it yet or if you don't remember, was fundamentally about the nature of forensic language, the nature of the biblical law court, and by implication, the nature of language in general. My argument was that debt, which is financial language, debt is not a self-explanatory referent. Of course, we do not literally owe God a debt. And here's what I mean. We do not owe God a certain amount of dollars and cents. That would be a literal debt. That would be what, that's what it would mean for us to uh, literally be in financial uh, debt to God. So we agree to begin with that it does have a symbolic referent. Now, sim symbolic does not mean, you know, we can just, you know, make it mean whatever we want it to mean. It has to be internally coherent. It has to make sense of the biblical text. But nobody is suggesting that there is a literal debt owed to God. And please keep in mind what I mean when I say there's not a literal debt. We don't owe God uh, a, a check uh, or a credit payable through Visa or MasterCard of a certain amount of dollars. Clearly, debt is signifying something uh, more important about our relationship with God and our relationship with other creatures. Uh, likewise, by the same token, the law court, nobody believes that we are literally in a divine law court. And what I mean by that is the usual referent which we have in mind when we speak of a courthouse or when we speak of a legal tradition. That referent is the human judicial system. Now, it's certainly true that the human judicial system exists because it is an imprint of the archetypal justice of God, because we're the image of God and we cannot help reflect but reflect his character and his pattern of life. Uh, but in the sense that most people I think would mean literal, we do not, nobody is suggesting that there is a literal law court. So forensic language and financial language is not self-explanatory. You have to under, you have to unpack what exactly it signifies. And repeatedly in our debate slash discussion, um, I asked Matt to define what he meant by our indebtedness to God or our legal uh, justification before God. And more importantly, uh, to justify or to, um, to give a basis for that definition through the scriptures. And when I would raise that point, this came up over and over again. Um, when I would raise that point, he would return to uh, where Jesus says, forgive us our debtors. Um, he's giving the Lord's Prayer. Uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Uh, and Matt uses that with its parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke to demonstrate that sin is a debt. And, of course, I agree with that, in a manner of speaking, but that still doesn't answer the central question of the debate, which is, what does the language of debt actually pertain to in the economy of salvation? 
The same thing is true of Colossians 2. Uh, Colossians 2 refers to a certificate of debt which is torn up and uh, uh, dissolved at the cross of Christ. And, of course, this is absolutely true, and it's not embarrassing to use this financial and forensic language. It's right there in the scriptures. But it's not self-explanatory. There are many different concepts of debt and of law and of justice that one could be working with. And those who say that it is simply self-evident or obvious, I have to say with all respect, simply uh, are reflecting a kind of theological parochialism. Because what is obvious to you or to one person is completely counterintuitive to another. And this is not a post hoc justification. This is really the case. There are all sorts of assumptions that we make about the world that other people take to be completely ludicrous. So we have to, if it's obvious to us, maybe it is intellectually obvious, but if that is the case, then you have to actually make that argument. I want to talk about some considerations on the approach that I took, which was to debate exegetically, to essentially grant sola scriptura for the sake of argument in the sense, and only in the sense, that I was going to make the argument based only on the Bible. I wanted to demonstrate without referring to tradition that the Bible teaches what the tradition of the church actually teaches. And in general, the response to that approach was very positive. Uh, but there, are some pe there were some people who felt that I should have engaged at a presuppositional level, uh, critiqued and undermined sola scriptura. Uh, now, I think that that's a legitimate debate to have However, I think that it is, in general, the debate that everybody is having. Uh, it's important as far as rhetorical and persuasive power goes that a critique methodologically of sola scriptura be coupled with a practical demonstration that the tradition of the church genuinely illuminates the text of scripture. Here's an analogy. If you're engaging with kind of a, a man-on-the-street materialist or naturalist, you could give a deductively certain argument that the mind is not identical to the brain, totally based on uh, philosophical considerations. And it would be, it's, it's because it's a deductive argument, it's not probabilistic. It is technically, on a logical level, superior to any kind of inductive argument from the uh, natural sciences. However, if you do not pair that deductive metaphysical argument with an empirically based argument that the mind is not reducible to the brain. If you look at a book called Irreducible Mind, which is uh, a very fascinating book published by two University of Virginia psychologists, um, it's quite lengthy and it's, it deals with all sorts of uh, questions like, is memory stored in the brain? No, memory is not stored in the brain. The, the evidence for that is, is, is thin to none. In any case, if you don't partner the philosophical argument with the empirical argument, then it creates the intuitive perception that one is playing a word game in the sense that people get the sense, people get the idea that there must be something wrong 
with the structure of your methodological argument because its practical utility is so evidently lacking. Now, I'm not critiquing any given person for debating sola scriptura on a methodological level. But what I am saying is that as a community, you know, as a, uh, the big picture here is that I think it's very useful to have people who are engaging not only on the sola scriptura thing, but then have other people, you know, like myself, who, uh, who kind of specialize in doing the exegesis and that kind of thing. If you look at the tradition of uh, Orthodox Christian apologetics, uh, this is hardly unprecedented. Uh, yes, the fathers of the church would criticize their opponents for their illegitimate uh, use of the scriptures when the scriptures had been transmitted from Christ through the apostles uh, according to the liturgical succession of bishops. But that wasn't the only thing that they did. They would also engage in a robust way exegetically with their heterodox opponents. And as far as I'm concerned, and, and nobody was, was really uh, terribly upset about this, so this, it's not offensive, but I just did want to give an explanation for why I, I take this approach. As far as I'm concerned, the proof of the pudding is in, in the eating, uh, which is that there are I have encountered a good number of people who had a very difficult time taking orthodoxy seriously or wanted to take it seriously but just couldn't figure out how it had anything to do with the scriptures, um, who were convinced that sola scriptura was logically incoherent but had no idea how in the world one could actually reconcile the traditional teaching of the orthodox church with what the scriptures tell us. Uh, when one presents a robust line-by-line -line exegesis which is capable of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with any reformed apologist uh, simply on the terms given by scripture itself uh, those problems can really uh, dissolve away because it unifies the abstract and the practical the concrete because truth is one and the concrete pattern of things in the world is a particularization and a manifestation of those higher level abstractions. And so when you can show that there's a harmony between these two kinds of arguments, I think it's very, very rhetorically powerful as far as persuasion goes. So what was the material hinge of the debate? So I'm going to take a page out from the uh, categories of Reformation theology. Uh, for the Reformation, the material principle is the uh, doctrine of justification by faith alone and by imputation, and the formal principle is the doctrine of sola scriptura. So I think that there's both a material hinge of this debate and a formal hinge. There's both a question of substance, disputing about what the scriptures actually teach, and then there's also a related question about the way in which we approach the scriptures to begin with and which way of approaching the scriptures is most likely to actually lead to their genuine sense. So uh, I uh, worked with a friend of mine in uh, developing the, uh, the thesis statement for the debate. Um, 
the original idea was just to have it be called justification by faith alone. But I think that's very problematic because they're defining it in that way uh, gives a person a wide range of latitude in what they feel that they have to defend. The real issue, as far as I'm concerned, is not the instrument of justification, not whether it's by faith or by faith and works. That's important, but it's important insofar as it's related to the following. The real issue is whether justification occurs by an infusion of grace from the Holy Spirit or whether it is the imputation of a righteousness, a record of obedience that remains alien to the life of the Christian. Now, of course, Protestants are not antinomians. They do not believe that we remain lawless, but nevertheless, the ground of our justification remains throughout our entire Christian life, all the way to the last judgment, according to most Protestants whom I've engaged with. The basis for our justification remains totally external to ourselves. That is, it is the record of Christ's active obedience, his good deeds. They are counted as if they were ours. And because Christ is declared righteous uh, on the basis of his perfect life, so also we are declared righteous because God acts in relation to us as if we had lived the perfect life of Christ. Now, the traditional uh, patristic and, and Christian doctrine uh, is that... Uh, Traditional Christian doctrine is, is, is the phrase I'm using. Um, that wasn't like a cut, like, oh, Protestants aren't Christians. Um, the traditional doctrine of justification and the way that Paul has historically been read by most of the fathers of the church is uh, a doctrine which sees justification as occurring by an actual infusion of divine life into the soul of the Christian. And so, God does save us from his wrath, but he saves us from his wrath by transfiguring us into that which is no longer an object of wrath, by turning us into one who has a healing and positive effect on the creation rather than a negative impact, which would lead to our uh, needing to be judged so that the creation could be protected. Uh, that's the major question of the debate. Is it an external alien righteousness which is imputed, or is it an inner infusion of divine life, or as I like to call it during the debate, um, an ontological transformation? And the formal hinge of this debate, which we talked about earlier at the beginning of the video, um, is how exactly do we interpret texts to begin with. Now, Matt and uh, a number of, uh, of, of folks who uh, took the same view that he did in the comment section in the live chat uh, felt that their reading of the text was so obvious such that I had to be of bad will to, to reject it or to not agree that you know a given answer was a sufficient, sufficient answer to the question, what do you mean? by debt. Um, and it was felt by a couple commenters, not many, but a couple, that uh, basically my argument was an intentional obfuscation. Uh, it was a word salad, to quote one commenter, 
uh, because he didn't understand it. And I have to say with all respect that because you don't understand it does not entail that there's nothing to understand. Uh, the degree to which paradigms differ from each other at multiple levels is easily underestimated by those who do not have a lot of experience kind of working through the nature of these different paradigms. And I'm not talking about Matt here, I'm talking about uh, some, some of the critics in the comment section. Uh, the things that you take to be perfectly obvious are not perfectly obvious. And the reasons that they are not perfectly obvious have to do with premises that you never even knew were in dispute to begin with. This is why it's so important to exercise the intellectual virtues of humility. Because the problems with your argument is not that you've heard an argument which you think is invalid, but it actually turned out to be a sound critique. 99% uh, of the time, unless you're doing this kind of um, on a regular basis and you've done so for years and you've, you've got a good handle on the secondary and primary literature, I mean, not to... Um, yeah, not to toot my own horn, but it is it is a complicated uh, discussion. Um, the ways in which you go wrong are ways which you haven't even considered before. Okay, I'm just talk, talking as a matter of general principle and from personal experience. Uh, the mistakes that you end up making, if it turns out that you're wrong, are not mistakes that you considered and accidentally overlooked after you had considered them and determined that they weren't mistakes, uh, they're rather things that you would never considered in the first place, and they come from a whole different direction than you were even thinking about. So again, the you here is a generic you, I'm not talking about Matt, uh, but I am just talking about the question of what is obvious? Is it really so self-evident? I remember, for example, uh, one person who, uh, several years ago uh, asked me why, uh, and this is after we'd had a, a lengthy discussion, why Eastern Orthodoxy denied that the crucifixion of Jesus was a sacrifice. And it was, on the one hand, it was kind of surprising because it's so obvious that that's not the case. Of course, we acknowledge that Jesus is a sacrifice. But what I realized is that in this person's mind, the idea of sacrifice was totally bound up with the particular idea and interpretation of substitution, which was present in this person's uh, confessional theology. Now, this wasn't a stupid person, and it wasn't a person of bad will. It's that we're using the same words that don't mean totally different things for, for both of us, and that's another big difficulty. They mean something which is closely related, but the subtle difference has a great, um, has a very substantial set of implications. Uh, so, again and again, as I mentioned in this debate, uh, we would turn back to the question of what is debt? Uh, and my argument is that what debt is, in terms of its uh, symbolic grammar, in terms of what it signifies in a biblical context, okay, so debt literally is you owe a certain amount of dollars to a person from whom you've taken out a loan. I'm not saying debt literally means this. I'm saying that in the context of its biblical symbolic grammar, what it means is the gap between what you ought to be in relation to God and what you are. When you owe a financial debt, 
what it means is that you owe, let's say, $100, but you only have $50 that you can pay. And the gap between that is thus a $50 debt. The debt in relation to God and man is a debt which brings about death. Because mankind, being what it is, being in the image of God, was created in relation to God such that its existence, its life, turned on its continued participation and subjection to God the Father. When mankind rebelled, it created a gap between the direction which man ought to have gone and where he was actually going. Just think, for example, of uh, the dramatic implications if you take your car and you're going in one direction, you're going uh, north, uh, you want to drive 100 miles north to get to where you're supposed to be, but you accidentally turn very slightly northwest. But then you drive for 100 miles and suddenly the very subtle separation becomes a dramatic and meaningful separation. Well, in some ways, that's analogous to what I think is going on in mankind's relation to God. Mankind, being man, being the image of God, requires uh, for continued existence participation in the grace of God. And when man sinned, when man went astray from God, and the meaning of the word sin in the Greek New Testament is missing the mark. Okay, so you're you ought to be moving in one direction and you miss the mark. You move in another direction. That's because according to you know, my perspective and I think the traditional perspective, uh, a thing being good or evil uh, is measured with respect to the uh, with respect to the degree to which it fulfills the purpose for which you were created. As long as the realization of that purpose lies within the capacity of the human power of willing. So the gap between what we ought to be in relation to God, which gives us life, and what we actually are, sinners going astray, that gap is infinite because God is infinite. So there is an infinite debt. Now Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. From all eternity, he possesses everything that it means for God to be God. And in the New Testament, we see this phrase used repeatedly, the riches of God's glory. And we find that divine grace is signified according to all of this terminology about wealth. Just think about the way in which the glory of God suffuses the city of God in the prophetic literature. And in the very same breath, the prophets speak of precious metals and jewels being built into that city of God. The ark of the, uh, the mercy seat is made of pure gold. It is the most precious metal in the tabernacle and then the temple. As you move closer and closer to the divine presence, the material out of which this section of the temple is made becomes increasingly valuable. So we can see that the relationship symbolically between wealth, between finance, and the glory of God 
is not something that I've just pulled out of thin air. It's something that's rooted in the scriptures. As I quoted in the debate, Jesus says in the book of Revelation, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. And so when we hear about buying and selling later in the book, we should understand it in a way that's harmonious with this earlier symbolic grammar that's already been established. So, Jesus being infinitely rich, the eternal son being infinitely rich, takes on human nature and without ceasing to be the divine and eternal son. Meaning that consubstantially with human nature, he now possesses the infinite riches which are necessary to make up that infinite debt. And in ontological terms, in terms of the actual effect that things have on the qualities of our nature, the way to express this is to say that Jesus, having it, being eternally radiant with divine glory as the eternal son, joined himself to human nature, which all human persons share in common. And in joining himself to human nature, he communicated to humanity the whole range of his divine life. And because humanity shares that one nature and that one nature is shared by Jesus, it creates the ability for us to share by the Holy Spirit in that divine life, which has been the Son's divine life from all eternity. So you can express it in those terms. You can express it also in these, uh, 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 this language of debt. Now, that was my concept of debt, and I think it's the biblical concept of debt. Uh, and the question that I tried to press Matt on during the debate was, what's your concept of debt and how is it based? Uh, but I think that uh, he, uh, again, if, if, if I'm misrepresenting him, he can, he can uh, comment on this. I don't know him well, at least not yet. Um, but I, I think that when he sees the word debt, um, he believes that it is really only compatible with one particular understanding of what that entails. Uh, and because it's only compatible with that one particular understanding, uh, it seems to me, at least this is the impression that I got from what he said in the debate, it seems to me that he doesn't even see it as a particular interpretation of what debt entails in a theological and soteriological context. Rather, it seems to me that he sees it as simply a self-evident uh, truth that's inherent to the meaning of the word, such that if I don't accept it as a legitimate response, I'm being intentionally difficult. And again, he was perfectly pleasant during the debate, so um, please don't take anything I say uh, as, as contradicting that. Um, but that was the formal hinge of the debate. Now, related to this is the uh, notion of forensic language. Um, let's see. Okay. Yeah, uh, forensic language. Uh, what is the biblical law court? Now, Matt said repeatedly during the debate that uh, justification is legal. Um, however, like the discussion that we had about debt, he did not define what kind of law, uh, what legal tradition he was working with, nor did he give an argument for why that legal tradition should control how we read 
the biblical text. So it's not that he presented an argument which I disagree with about the nature of forensic language in the scriptures. It seems to me that he didn't present an argument at all. He simply um, assumed or inferred, uh, regards it as, as, as nearly self-evident, that the imputation of an alien righteousness is only and exactly what uh, legal and forensic language is talking about. And some people in the comment section of the debate uh, said Cobain rejects the idea of forensic language and i have to say matt didn't say this um but i have to say to those who 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 wrote that i'm just utterly stunned because i said again and again and again in the debate because i wanted the audience to understand it that i do not reject forensic language i do not reject forensic justification what i do insist upon is that we have a very that we develop in our own minds an understanding of exactly what we mean by those terms and why we mean it in that way 